Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It is me. I am your host, Cindy Howes. So grateful that you're checking out the show today. We are talking to Andrew Marlin of Watch House. Two years into starting his band, Mandolin Orange, Andrew Marlin and his partner, Emily Franz, were having second thoughts about their band name. Nine years later, this past year, they announced their new name, Watch House. It's easy to understand why it took so long to change their name. They were putting out records, gaining momentum, and quickly establishing themselves with this funny, meaningless band name. Andrew had an orange mandolin, and he named the band as such. What's harder to grasp is that Andrew Marlin is an individual whose every action, output, and intention is incredibly thoughtful and filled to the brim with meaning. On the pod, he talks about the new band name's origin. It's named after this place he would visit as a teenager in the Chesapeake Bay. It was a quiet place where he would spend a lot of time in silence and communion. And he talks about why he wanted to bring that essence to the sound of Watch House. Andrew was born and raised in a small North Carolina town surrounded by the musical women in his family. His grandmother, mom, and sisters played piano in church growing up, and he was surrounded by a lot of hymns and old songs. He bought a guitar at 14 after saving up his own earnings from the nearby farm store, took him three long weeks to save, and he began to write songs. He moved to Chapel Hill in 2008 to dig into the music community, meeting Emily at an impromptu jam one year later. With her, he met his match, started a band, and has subsequently made a life and family with Emily. He gets into how the two were able to connect, how she truly sees him and his obsession with the mandolin, and how listening to Bill Monroe instrumentals and old fiddle tunes really sharpened his playing. Andrew is a very smart and articulate person who makes important music. I'm excited to hear more from Watch House and where they grow musically. Enjoy, Andrew. And yes, an Emily interview is in our future. Let's take a listen to a song from their self-titled release from Watch House. This is New Star, and then we'll get to our conversation with Andrew Marlin on Basic Folk. We settled in for the winter Casting our light Found a new star And all of our remaining hours Were bundled up tight Placed in our arms Someday We'll be Okay, Andrew, I'm really happy to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, glad to be here. I really enjoy reading quotes from you in interviews. Uh, <laughs> you are good at saying things. Um, so I wanted to start this interview off with a quote uh, from you that like really resonated with me, where you said, I'm definitely a whimsical idea kind of man. I'll come up with something one day, and then I have to get it done the next day, or it won't happen. So I feel that so hard and wonder like where that whimsy and extreme do or die mentality comes from. Like if it reminds you of anyone in your family or something like that. Um, I, maybe, uh, I feel like <laughs> possibly my mom, but I, 
I never, I never got to know my mom that well as an adult. She died when I was 18, but, uh, mm-hmm. she definitely seemed like pretty much always on the go, like very fast, like get an idea and go for it kind of person. And so I think it might've come from her, but I don't know. I should ask my dad about that actually now that you bring that up. Um, yeah. So I feel that's like. I feel that's so like me as well. Like it's three o'clock in the morning. I'm like, here's a great idea. Let me get up and start working on it right away. And it's like, why don't you just wait till the sun comes up or something like that? No, I've got so many things like notes and voice memos that I'll just never revisit because it's like the moment has passed now, you know? Yeah. That's why I think I'm like a terrible marketing person because I'm like, hey guys, (laughs) this is a really good idea. This, these are 25 good ideas and then it never happens. (laughs) Okay. Anyways, um, you grew up in a small North Carolina town called Warrington, uh, population 862, very close to the Virginia border. What did small town like life look like for you and how did you see yourself fitting into the town? It was, there was a lot of drinking. Um, (laughs) <laughs> a lot of, <laughs> a lot of kind of like just really dangerous hangout sessions. You know, we were so bored that uh, we kind of just tried anything to occupy our minds, you know. And it finally got to the point where I realized that I was much happier just sitting in a, like a dark room playing acoustic guitar and not going out and risking my life every weekend. Um, so smart. <clears throat> well, something. I'd, and so for a long time, I I didn't feel like I fit in there, you know, and I'd, I got out of there as quick as I could. When I was about 20, I moved to Chapel Hill. But now it's funny that you ask this question now because I just wrote a tune about it and actually had a really good visit maybe a month or so ago, I went back home and took my daughter with mm-hmm. me and like went to go see a bunch of my high school buddies, you know, and just hang out with everybody. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is definitely like my people. This is where I'm from, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and it, it was cool to see my daughter like just fall right in and talk to them. And um, she's three. She's almost three. Yeah, she'll be three in September, but she talks better than I do. You know, she's like. <laughs> She's a she's got a good little brain on her. She must be a genius. She she definitely has a a big brain. <laughs> um, <laughs> I get her to explain things to me now. Um, I love that. But uh, it was cool seeing her navigate, you know, the, some of those relationships that I have, and like just talking to people that she hadn't met before, but I've known forever, you know. So yeah, maybe I want to go back and, and spend a little more time there. So that's cool that you talk about your town through the lens of like your relationships with the people there and not like the landscape or anything. Sounds like it's all about the people. Yeah. I mean, that's all there is to go on there. I mean, it's a beautiful town. Don't get me wrong. Like it's, it's a really old town and like some of the, you know, the buildings there and some of the old houses are absolutely gorgeous, but I definitely, you know, the thing that I think keeps people there is, is the people, you know, it's the, mm. it's the social mm. aspect. What kind of music was resonating with you when you were young, like preteen? Preteen? Yeah. I mean, uh, probably pop country, you know, whatever the 90s country radio was, you know, that's what I was listening to a lot of. Are we talking like late 90s? No, we're talking like, like early 90s, like Billy Ray Cyrus uh achy breaky heart uh air like trace adkins uh what's what's the one butterfly kisses um oh yeah totally um yeah it's a banger it's a great tune um (laughs) is it joe diffie had a bunch of hits in the early 90s jody messina what did she what what was what was her tune it's california tales carolina yeah, somewhere greener. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. So that's kind of what I was listening to. and Garth. Yeah, a lot of Garth Brooks, of course. Mm. Can't go wrong there. Um, and my mom played piano for the church, so it was mm. a, lot of, a lot of hymns, a lot of piano music, you know. Yeah, a lot of women too. in your family, your grandma, your mom, your sisters, played piano in church growing up, and so you were surrounded by hymns and old songs and you lost uh, both your mom and your grandma when you were young Mm -hmm. and you said those tunes still hold a very special place in my heart 
The melodies remind me of a time when my family just felt a little more whole. Yeah. So how did losing them shape your connection to the music that they would play in church? Um, when I when grandma died, I didn't really latch on or think about music very much then. I was kind of like just starting to get to that age where I was a little more aware of what was going on, you know what I mean? Um, but definitely when after mom passed is when I really started writing music and and thinking about, you know, the absence of of that, mm. you know, all of that music that she used to just keep the house filled with. And so um, and from there, it made me just think about my grandma a little more, too, and remember, you know, times when they would both sit down at the piano at Christmas and just, like, play together. Um, you know, I just, yeah, it was such a, a formative thing for me as a as a kid, like, watching her be able to just sit down at the piano and just, like, just play and string tunes together and, you know, and just almost just, like, stream of consciousness kind of thing. Mm. Um and I wanted that freedom, you know, I, I missed it. I missed being able to see it and being able to feel that and being able to hear that. And so I basically just like, kind of unconsciously, but definitely also, you know, very consciously sought that out and tried to figure it out for myself. And I feel like I'm just now, um, uh, over 16 years later, like finally starting to get that, you know, and, mm. and to be able to do that. You bought a guitar when you were 14. You worked at the local farm store saving up your earnings for weeks. It sounded yeah. like pretty hard for a 14-year-old. Can you talk about the desire to get a guitar at the time? And why did you have to work so hard to get it? And did that impact your relationship to like learning the instrument at all? Yeah, well, uh, it's another one of those whimsical things. I uh, hadn't <laughs> thought about it, a guitar at all. And then I, I saw this guy... Um, that ended up becoming like a really close friend of mine through the guitar. I ran into him at the, the county fair, the Ward County Fair, and I, I, I was 14, and I said, hey, Rick, I, I know you play guitar, man. Do you have one that you want to sell? And he's like, uh, not really, but I, I have one I will sell if you want it. And uh, so he told me he'd sell it to me for 100 bucks, and it took me like three weeks to save up $100. <laughs> three weeks is not that long. But, it, I mean... I thought we were talking about like 18 weeks or No, no, whatever. no, no, no. Yeah. I mean, um, that was my second guitar. Um, oh. <laughs> but no, the first one only like like three weeks. But I mean, we're talking about like going to school and then. But yeah, so I just like, I never put it down after I got it and just mm. started started writing songs like the first night that I got it. I'd, I'd learned like two chords and just kind of went from there. Okay, so yeah, at 14 years old, what did it feel like? to write songs back then and how do you relate to that feeling in the writing process now? Um, I was, I just remember being so elated that I wrote a song and I could like remember the melody and remember the lyrics and just being able to show that to somebody. And it was a terrible song, but, um, I still remember how it goes. It's called live for now. Um, <laughs> and, Sounds uh, like a good message. I mean, it was a great message, but it was just a really bad song. Um, all right. I'm, I'm critical though. So, but yeah, it was just really cool to be able to create something like that and then go sing it for somebody, you know. And I think it just, I got addicted to it. And so I've just been doing that since I was 14. Hmm. You moved to Chapel Hill, like you mentioned, it was back in 2008. Um, you were 20 years old at the time. I read somewhere that you moved there to make an album. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, I made a solo right. record when I was 20. And uh, I still have like a thousand... CDs that I'm sitting on from oh, Dressmakers. <laughs> Save it for the box set. Yeah, exactly. When you arrived, you started getting into the acoustic scene in the Triangle area of folk and bluegrass. So, like, before we get to talking about the mandolin, because I feel like the mandolin deserves, like, its own interview for you but we'll have a few <laughs> questions but before we get to that yeah. how did you receive this new world of folk bluegrass jamming playing on porches etc um it was so exciting to me because i think you know at this point i was about six years into writing songs and um two years into losing my mom and i kind of i needed 
that community more than I thought I'd. I, I could have never pinpointed mm. at 20 how much I needed that community and how much I needed that music. But because songwriting was always so personal for me that it was it was kind of hard to like show these songs that I was writing and actually play them with other people. But I always wanted to play them with other people. And so I loved when I first came here how I would sit down with just, you know, a random group of people and they would all just be able to play for hours on end because they had this common knowledge of bluegrass tunes, you know. So even if you don't know a song, it's similar enough to other songs that you've heard that you're able to just latch on and play. And it was mind-blowing to me at 20 years old. I'd never seen people be able to just, you know, just jam that way together and play music like that together. Um, hmm. And so it made me want to learn how to play solos and how to, you know figured that out like learn fiddle tunes and learn some bluegrass tunes so yeah I just started listening to a lot of Bill Monroe a lot of Norman Blake a lot of Carter family Tony Rice and yeah all that. more on that okay but first let's talk about the mandolin all right here is a quote from your wife Andrew is really truly obsessed with the mandolin we'll stop <laughs> at a rest stop and he'll opt to sit in the car and play mandolin for 10 minutes while everyone else is going to the bathroom and stretching. <laughs> yeah, pretty yep. much. That's it. I love that. Um, a friend turned you on to this Tony Rice and Ricky Skaggs record from 1980 called Skaggs and Rice. You said, I just love how melodic it was and how much it serves each of those songs and the tone of it. It was like a magnet to my ear. So can you further explain the draw of the melody of the mandolin and how the instrument has evolved for you over time in terms of like allowing you to express yourself? I I think it's one of the most like emotional instruments I've ever heard. You know, it's like it just has a huge dynamic range um, and gets super aggressive sometimes. Um, like when you hit it really hard, but it's made to be hit really hard. And so it has this beautiful distortion to it. Um, but then when you play it really quietly and like bring it way down and you just barely activate the top it has this cool dispersion uh, dispersion where the note you can almost feel it ripple across the top very gently and it almost you can get like these piano tones out of it um especially mm -hmm. if you're like just a centimeter from the microphone that you're playing into it's just this really beautiful tone and so i kind of just fell in love with how i'm able to kind of steer a band with it you know like when when i play in the studio i like to play all kinds of instruments but live i found that the mandolin is just kind of it, it's a good ship steer you know? hmm. one way that you would learn was to listen to old fiddle tunes and for someone who's like not a musician and doesn't understand technical stuff mm -hmm. can you explain the relation to the mandolin yeah, so uh, a mandolin and fiddle are both tuned the same way, just G, D, A, E. And so um, all the fiddle tunes you hear lay out so beautifully on the mandolin, especially when they're played together. It's like my favorite sound. And um, and so, you know, folks like Christian Settlemeyer and Emily, obviously, are just like soulmates of mine because I, I love that sound, you know, when the mandolin and fiddle play together. But... Um, I think for learning the scale of the mandolin, to me, I found trying to just like practice scales was never very fun for me because I'm a songwriter. And so who wants to just sit there and do these like boring, mindless kind of like exercises. Um, but learning fiddle tunes kind of teaches you how to use the scales within these chord progressions. And then because fiddle tunes and like old bluegrass singing tunes have very similar chord structures as well. Um, it kind of teaches you how to solo within the style of bluegrass as well. Mm. So it's like you just get to check a lot of boxes, but you get to learn your mm. instrument, you get to learn the scales, and you get to just learn how to solo a little more freely. That's cool. Uh, you also work on getting very comfortable with the technical side of things, which helps you lean into the feeling of the instrument. So can you explain that like balance and how that feels when you're able to emote in your playing versus like playing with absolute precision? Yeah, I kind of, I think it was uh, Phil Cook who said, um, 
don't know if you know Phil or not, but he's oh yeah, like, yeah, just a a Durham, North Carolina staple. Um, a goddamn angel. He is a goddamn angel, um, <laughs> and a brilliant one. Um, but I heard him say in an interview one time that he basically is trying to learn his instrument as much as he can to get it out of the way, so he doesn't have to think about it anymore. He just picks it up and just plays it how he feels it, and. That was that was a really inspiring thing to read. I think I read that in like 2010. I was like, yeah, I I want to do that. That sounds great. <laughs> so uh, I, since then, and and before then too, but really, you know, in 2009, 10 ish, when I really started diving into the mandolin, is kind of started me on a, a technical journey as well as a songwriting emotive journey. And I think I think being able to ride the line between the two. Um, it's really nice whenever I, whenever we're playing a show and I'm really feeling it and I feel like my eyes are closed more than they're open, um, I don't think about the technical side at all. But it is mm-hmm. nice sometimes when I'm not feeling it and I'm having kind of an off night to, to have those, um, you know, the more technicalities to lean on and to know that mm-hmm. at least what I'm playing musically makes sense. So Right. Yeah. Well, part of that uh, technicality training um, is you thinking in terms of longevity. You said, I want to think in terms of longevity, figuring <clears throat> out techniques that keep me relaxed without hurting myself on it. What does that mean, and how do you work towards that? Uh, mainly just staying relaxed. I think it's like in any any exercise, really. If you're straining or doing something that you shouldn't be, there's no longevity in that. Like you're going to hurt something more than you're going to help it by trying to do this exercise. And so one of the things that I always try to do is stay in tune with, you know, how my shoulders are doing and, you know, what my feet are doing. If I'm tapping my toes or if they're like all curled up and tense, um, you know, because all anxiety fist ever. Anxiety fist. No, but yeah. I definitely clench my jaws. And so anxiety jaw. yeah, I have anxiety jaw. Um, but, uh, which they're not tense right now. You're very relaxing. Um, thank you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and I, I feel like just being aware of what the rest of your body is doing, even if it's not your hands, just like paying attention to my neck or my shoulders, uh, cause it's all connected is a good way to make sure I'm not hurting anything when I'm actually trying to work on those technicalities. Mm. That's a really good practice for life too. Yeah. You're figuring it all out. I'm trying, you know. I mean, I I wouldn't say I've mastered any of this, but it is something that I think about. You have talked about how instruments are different from each other, like different mandolins sound different. Um, You said it completely rearranges my musical mind playing different instruments, and you said they're almost like little people. (laughs) They That's are. Cute. They and are. So you don't tell your friends how to act. So why would you tell an instrument how to sound? Which is nice, Andrew, that you're friends with your instruments. <laughs> they, uh, I mean, my my instruments help me navigate all of my feelings. You know, the same way a, like a therapist would. Um, so I feel like you know I just try to respect them and you know talk to them, think about them, and. Uh, mm. You know, sometimes they want to be played and sometimes they don't. So it's it's weird. Do you give your instruments names? Because mm-hmm. I've heard you you and Emily refer to instruments in interviews. I'm like, I don't know who that is. It must be the guitar or it must be the yeah. mandolin. <laughs> I, uh, I don't name my guitars, but I do name my mandolins. Um, uh, would you like to hear their names? Uh, yes, obviously. Okay, so... Uh, my oldest, actually not my oldest mandolin, my second oldest mandolin, um, is a Gibson from 1924 that was designed by Lloyd Lore. So I'm really excited to have that one. Um, and I call that one Pearl. Um, I've got a, a Nugget from 83, built by Mike Kimmitzer that I call Tiki, after the guy that I bought it from, his, uh, I wanted this mandolin for like 12 years and he finally sold it to me. And uh, I never had a name for it. And a few years ago, his dog died, who was a really great friend of his. Like, he just 
he was devastated, obviously, because it's, mm. and and so I asked him if I could name the mandolin that I bought from him after his uh, dog uh, Tiki to carry on the That's legacy so there. So uh, yeah, Tiki, and uh, which might be coming on the next run. I haven't decided yet. Um, I have a new mandolin that was built by Steve Gilchrist, who's like one of the top builders um, and a good friend, and he. He put a lot of love in this instrument. You can tell it, like when you pick it up, it's just got a lot of life to it, and I'm excited to get to know it a little better. But uh, I've been calling that one Goose because it's got these little stripes in the top just from the wood, uh, which made me think of a mongoose, but then mm. I thought mongoose was a little too long. <laughs> um, yeah, save time. So yeah. Goose. Um, you also like Top Gun, right? Exactly. It's like my my wingman. Um <laughs> I guess that would make me Tom Cruise, right? I forget what his name was in that. But, Who uh, cares? Exactly. But, <laughs> but Goose. And then there's Gale, which is uh, this old 1921 Gibson oval hole that I don't take out on the road much, but I love to sit around the house with it. And it's just got this really beautiful tone. I write a lot of songs on it. Um, but it has this crazy low tone that it does. Like when you just, just hit a string, there's the fundamental note that uh that sounds really beautiful and complete but then you can almost hear the back of the instrument just like blow this air out of the out of the uh oh, yeah. hole it's a really weird sound um and so i thought it it reminded me of like like a very wind like a wind instrument and so I, I called it gale yeah yeah i've read about gale that yeah. was that was that started my curiosity to be like what is and then is there one more that there might be more than one more but there's another one from one of your favorite I don't know what you call a mandolin maker, a luthier. Yeah. Uh, uh, who passed away and then his wife sold it to you. Yeah, Ella. Um, Ella is a beautiful instrument. I sold Ella when I got the lore. I basically sold everything when I got uh, my lore. But uh, I've been in contact with a guy who bought that one just to see if maybe one day he wants to sell it back. We'll see what right. happens. Yeah. Maybe he'll listen to this and be inspired. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is it like for you when an instrument reveals itself to you? Um, well, that depends on when it reveals itself. Um, if I don't own it, it can sometimes be like, uh, you know, one of those bittersweet things that it, it's cool to know. Like there's this one mandolin that, uh, was built by John Sullivan that Caleb Clowder from the Foghorn String Band owns, and when you hear, hear him play it or you pick it up to play it, it's just like it's magic, like pure magic. Mm. Um, and so, it's cool to know that those exist. You know, like Sam Bush's mandolin, Haas. Um, uh, Caleb's Caleb's mandolin is called Sugar. In case you were wondering, um, <laughs> so I'm not alone in naming the. Is instruments. this a thing among mandolin players? Um. I guess so. I, I mean, I think, like, there are some that, that kind of merit names, you know. It's like the mandolins themselves become almost as popular as the people that play them, you know. Mm. And so they kind of take on entities of their own. But uh, Do all your fans probably already know all the names? Um, Maybe. I just, I, I, I sell and buy mandolins all the time, you know. Oh, okay. So, so you're hard to keep up with. I'm hard to keep up with. Um. <laughs> But it, I think one of those, I've, I've been trying to like figure out why it is that I do that actually, you know, um, why I don't just stick with one. I think I get, um, kind of like songwriting, you know, I feel like my songwriting changes all the time and, um, mm -hmm. you know, and a mandolin, as much as they are like their friends and their little people, you know, I feel like they're on their own little journeys too. And so I don't try to just hoard them you know if i don't if i feel like i'm not playing one then i sell it because i don't want it to just be sitting in the case um and suffocating yeah I, I want it to go on its own journey and there's somebody out there that's going to be really happy mm. to have it you know um and if it comes back then i'm always happy to greet it with open arms but uh so speaking of like your writing changing yeah um when you got to chapel hill you were really into like the simplicity of the music you were experiencing in the players. Mm -hmm. um, and it made you want to get like really good at your instrument um, in terms of like writing songs. 
so how did your writing change once you started getting better at mandolin? Um, mainly just leaving more spa uh, space for interpretation and like for improvisation. Um, but I try to still keep the songs, even in their like, some of the more complicated ones are pretty open, you know, and, and pretty mm -hmm. accessible. Um, and I think that's, that's probably the thing that I've tried to latch on to the most is just leaving a lot of space in there for improvisation, you know, and we can kind of, depending on how the band's feeling, we can decide to stretch that out or like, and really dive into those moments or just kind of like brush over them and keep the song going, depending on how we feel. So hmm. that's, that's the main change I would say. All right, let's go back to 2008. All right. Back to Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. um, you So I really love the um, culture around meeting people and making friends and maintaining relationships through playing music, through jamming. Um, I think that level of connection with a person. I'm not a, a player, but I just like love. I'm, I, I love to be at the hang at the jam. Mm -hmm. You know, so I like totally <coughs> love that connection. And one such person you made that connection with was your future bandmate and spouse, Emily Franz. You met at an impromptu jam in 2009 on the night of Obama's inauguration, which was a big night <laughs> Indeed. for everyone. Yeah. Uh, at a Mexican restaurant. Can you lay out the happenings that night? Like, what drew you towards each other besides the good looks? Um, I just remember, so at that moment, I was just so enthralled with um, bluegrass and acoustic music and wanting to be able to play, you know, and, like, be able to, when, they, when I got the nod to take a solo, I wanted to be able to just, like, navigate my little 30-second part of this tune uh, more freely, you know? Um and so Emily walks in and it's like, I'd never seen her play with these folks before. And she just sits down very casually and she gets the nod and just plays this awesome solo. And I was just like, well, okay, we'll give her that one. She probably knows this song really well. But then for the next like three hours, she just <laughs> time and time again, is just nailing these solos and just like, um, you know, just, just like is a force in the, in the jam, like, you know, and, and just took the whole band and really picked it up to another level um but then not only that but you know some of the songs that i was singing i'd you know i'd been learning some bluegrass tunes so i could bring them to the group whenever you know i could kind of fit it in and try and sing a tune and she always knew the choruses you know because she'd been playing this music forever and so she would sing harmony with me and i just remember like damn this is too easy it sounds really good you know and uh it's super fun and then obviously what's the catch yeah exactly um it's, you know 12 years later still no catch um <laughs> but yeah it was just it just I just remember how easy it was and how like how mm. fun it was and so we decided to get together outside of that and play music together and you know eventually that led to me writing more songs for me and her and then mm -hmm. you know however many records later Apart from her remaining in your life to this day, she is also she also grew up in Chapel Hill. And at the time that you met, you know, it'd been maybe a year. Um, you were still kind of new to town. So mm -hmm. how did having someone like Emily at the start of your time in town help you get more acquainted and, and more comfortable? Oh, it was huge. I mean, she like because she went to high school there, you know, and she also went to college there. She just had so many friends and so many connections in the area. And so, you know, we, I think we were out like seven nights a week just hanging with people wow. and like, you know, yeah, we weren't home very much. Yeah, we were actually, Young we talk, people. <laughs> I know we talk about it. We're like, how do we afford that? Like we can't <laughs> afford that now. Like what did we do back then? We didn't even have jobs hardly. Um, but you know, it was a fun, it was a fun time in our lives and it definitely, um, you know, it helped me to get to know the area a lot better and uh, get to know a lot of people in the area, which, again, makes it feel like home. So. so the band began as Mandolin Orange, which is a name that you have retired and you're now known as Watch House. And I think in general, Andrew, um, we talked about the names of your mandolins. 
you are really good at naming stuff. Mandolins, songs, babies, bands. Um, <laughs> Mandolin Orange was kind of a funny name. You came up you came up with the name when you were 20. It was, you know, you had an orange mandolin, and you're like, oh, mandolin orange, and then yeah, exactly. that was it. Um, so this might be a weird question, but what does it mean to you to have names that reflect something important? And when did you realize that Mandolin Orange was not cutting it for you anymore? Uh, I think we realized that maybe like two years in. But even then, like it just felt like things were moving too fast. And we still had to call ourselves something. And we just kept putting it off, you know. Um, and so over the break, uh, by break, I mean an intensely shitty pandemic. Um, we just got to know ourselves a little better, um, you know, because it was we'd been on go for ten years, you know, and I think we finally decided like now's the time. You know, we don't want to enter back in the world. Um, you know, having having changed as people, but also the world having changed and like. Mm kind of sobered up a little bit you know I feel like I'm I, I think I think I'd like to think that there's going to be a lot of good perspective that is that comes out of mm. this and a little more appreciate appreciation for life and for society and for you know your neighbors all that good stuff um but I think we just wanted to set more intention and a better intention because mm -hmm. you know we started thinking about how we weren't playing shows and we wanted to be playing shows and how much, you know, that lifestyle means to us. And the thing that we identify as, um, which is our band name, we didn't identify with. Um, and we felt like it didn't, it didn't really convey where it is that I go when I write songs and, you know, where we go when we sing together. It just seemed, it seemed to to something you know it didn't seem it didn't seem like reverent enough um yeah it seems like i don't know if you have any tattoos but you seem like the kind of person that would never just be like i'm gonna get a butterfly tattoo because i think they're pretty you know it's yeah like there's got to be some kind of like crazy meaning behind something so important yeah yeah well i mean to backtrack a little bit i think i apply meaning to all of these things because they're little lifelines, you know, like when I lost mom, it, it, it threw me for a loop and to say the least. And I've been trying to like fill that space for 16 years now, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and so I search for the meaning and everything and I, I latch on to things and they're, um, but because of that, I have a lot of important things in my life that I've latched onto and, and things that I can't apply meaning to and I, I can't find meaning in, I, I don't hold on to them. Um, mm. And I also don't have any tattoos for that very reason. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, so... Because uh, you're whimsical and like to make, it seems like, spur-of-the-moment decisions. So I feel like if you ever get a tattoo, it's going to be the day after you come up with the idea. <laughs> it's going to have to be... I'll, I'm I'm glad I don't have any friends that like do tattoos on the spot. You know what I mean? Because right. then I would right, have right. A, I would have a lot, um, yeah, and then I'd yeah, have yeah. a lot to apply meaning to as well. Um, but uh, where were we again? Um, well, I think now is a good time to talk about the meaning of the new name Watch House. It comes from a place where you would spend time as a teen in the Chesapeake Bay. It was a quiet place where you would spend a lot of time in silence and communion. So can you talk more about that place and how it might have impact your essence as a young person and why you wanted to bring that essence to your band? Yeah, and mainly it just reminds me of a time um, when I didn't know I needed to get away, but we were, you know, and I think, you know, the my friend's parents who were taking us there knew exactly what they were doing. They were getting away from everything and taking a break from work and taking a break from, you know, their day-to-day. -day. And uh, for me and my buddy Carl, we were just like, you know, we were just 14 years old getting to drive boats and, like, mm -hmm. hang out on a dock. Um, but when I look at that now, it's like 
that's exactly where I want to take people, you know, when they listen to our music. I want them to go to a place that's two miles offshore and um, you only take your closest friends and you you can just get away from everything, you know, because we're not we're not a party band, you know, and, and we're not we're not the band that's going to make you, you know, on a on a road trip with 15 people be like, hey, check out this jam, you know, it's like I think we're there for the intimate moments and the moments where you want to actually like think about things and reflect. Mm. Um, and that's that's what the Watch House was, you know, it's, it was a place to go with your closest friends and look at the stars or like, you know, look at the shoreline where there's so much life happening and so many stories happening but your story it has nothing to do but look at the shoreline and see the pretty lights you know mm. um it's a nice way to get away um so that was kind of the 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 point of the new band name in the journey of leaving behind your old band name i read that sound checks were allowing you space to explore a new sound yeah I love that. Who said that? <laughs> Somebody on the internet. Ah, well, brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah, we would, we would, uh, in trying to like get ready for the show, we would always just play kind of whatever would come to mind and and try new things. So, yeah, sound checks are a good a good time to try all that. You know. Hmm. Um, I also wanted to talk about the physical. And visual aesthetic of Watch House, um, if you could describe it, how you landed on it, what it was inspired by, like, and how it makes you feel to present yourself as a spooky space folk musician. <laughs> um, it feels true, you know. I, I spend a lot of time with the lights off, um, and but you can't just present darkness, or people won't watch it. Um, <laughs> Do you have those like glow in the dark stars on your ceiling? Uh, I don't have those, but we do have a little uh, rotator uh, star light thing that casts close yeah. enough. Yeah, um, lots of candles hanging out around. You know, mm. um, it's a very like Stevie Nicks. Vibe. Totally, yeah. yeah. Except in the bathroom instead of like a, a like a palace. Um, <laughs> maybe just like the bathroom in the palace. Um, <laughs> So it's it sounds really good, but it's still like very real. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, but actually, I do. I love to to play music in the bathroom. Oddly enough, because of the tile and like it just sounds awesome. It's the same reason people like to sing in the shower. So I just turn the lights off and put a candle in the bathroom, and that's usually where most of my songs are written. Well, if you ever come to Pittsburgh, you can stay at my house because we've just got our basement renovated and a brand new. Beautiful bathroom. Yes. Yes. How does, how, does, <laughs> how does it sound? Listen, I need to go find a mandolin yeah. real quick, but I will get back to you. Sounds good. I have a couple other questions about Watch House, but I really want to know um, uh, more about like your writing on the guitar. So you write songs on the guitar. Mm -hmm. um, but then when you're working things out, Emily is usually the one playing on the recordings and playing guitar at the shows um, while you're doing mandolin. I think for the most part, that's like how it goes. So you have said that she has kind of like a loose right hand from playing the fiddle. How does yeah. that translate to the the sound of her guitar? It just, um, when I say loose, I, I, I mean the phys physicality of it, <clears throat> not the sound of it. Her her plan is just, it just, it's really effortless, you know, and I feel like the rhythm of that is, um, it just makes you sway. You kind of fall into it and, and it's really easy to play solos over because you never have to question where the beats are. Um, mm. you kind of just, you just feel it, you know, and I think, I think that's what I mean by the looseness. It's like, there's no rigidity there. It's just very, mm. very free flowing. So I'm interested in a couple of like girl and boy questions um that might be boring but they might not be boring so you know you have worked with emily and played with emily so closely for years you've worked with rachel bayman who is an awesome guitar player um so what have you learned from you know women guitarists in your life 
about like what it means to play from a feminine perspective? Um, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it much, you know, they're just like so talented and easy to play with, you know, and I'd, I hadn't really thought about it from a, a, a feminist perspective, you know, but well, when I'm getting back to you about the mandolin in my bathroom, you can get back to me about this one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll say that, uh, they definitely have a way of tapping into, at least from like playing with Emily and Rachel, they both have amazing perspectives on life. And I feel like they're both, you know, two people that I would trust their judgment on pretty much any situation. So, mm-hmm. um, I think the fact that they want to play music with me is very grounding and makes me, gives me a lot of confidence. Um, so yeah. In a lot of female and male duos, it's kind of, and I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, it's kind of unusual for the guy to have the lead vocals and for the female to kind of be the backup player. So how have you reflected on gender roles in like musical performance versus like the reality of your band? Um, I think mainly just, we just do what feels right for us. You know what I mean? I think it's easier for, or maybe just more of a common practice for people that aren't making the music to draw those comparisons, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. Like us idiots in the, in the uh, journal, journal no no, no not that um <laughs> it's uh you said it not the patriarchy me. yeah no, i just think it's more like when you're in it and you're doing it and those relationships are are more than just like a just something on a screen you know what i mean like when you're actually waking up to it every day and you're sitting down to do it it's not something that i or emily that i know of really thinks about we just you know, I write the songs and I, I, I usually sing them. And for her, she's such a good backup player. You know, she's great at mm-hmm. like finding those spaces and really great harmony singer. Um, and I love it when she takes leads on tunes and when she, she feels like she actually can connect with a song mm-hmm. enough to want to sing it herself. Um, but, but I think in terms of like our, like our standard roles, it's just, we just do what feels natural. It's interesting to think about though, because I mean, in this interview right now, I'm like really having a hard time finding a band like Watch House where it's a man and a woman and the woman is like primarily the backup player. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Sweet. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, you should ask Emily that. I'd, I'd really love to hear her, like, her thoughts on it and see. Yeah, for sure. How she, you know, maybe she's, uh, she's given me more than I think, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I would love to just hear her, like, her perspective on that to see All right. where she's I'll at. I'll put that it. in my Emily folder. Yeah, you should. For the future. Yeah. Sweet. Um, I want to talk about the muse and your receptors um, being open to inspiration, uh, whenever you feel it and you have been writing for a really long time and it's been a major part of you for so long that you always have your receptors on. Um, and I read that this practice actually makes it really hard for you to stay present. Uh, I read in one particular instance, especially it's hard to stay present with your daughter, Ruby. How have the receptors helped you stay keen over the years and then why do they actually interfere with staying present? I would think that they would be helpful like in observing the the beauty of life. They they are and it's really it's wonderful when you're by yourself, you know, because then you can like try to pick apart the minutia of of any given thing that you're staring at or thinking about. But at least with hanging out with Ruby like she's she doesn't stay in one place very long. And so like for me, I could like, you know, I could sit right here in this closet where we're doing this interview and, and be pretty set all day, especially if I had an instrument. Um, but I think I want to be available to her to just navigate all the whims, you know, and just like, just at a chop of a hat, be able to take off running into the woods and play hide and go seek with her, you know? Um, and that's that's a muscle that I'm learning to, like, still learning to 
be able to engage like very quickly, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So back to um, the record, self-titled record for Watch House. It is out now. The episode drops after the release date. So uh, Josh Kaufman, who is, uh, I actually met Josh many years ago, I think in like 2008 when he was with Don, Don Landis. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came by in, in Pittsburgh and I met that whole kind of um, Balthrop, Alabama crew. Um, he's had a lot of... Uh, a lot of projects over the years, most recently, like working with the band Bonnie Light Horseman, uh, The National, somebody, uh, Taylor Swift. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard yeah. of her. She's like a folk, a folk star. Folk? A folk, yeah. I saw her on a Tiny Desk contest, <laughs> concert. Oh, I yeah. Mean. Cool. Yeah. So she's, she's doing all right. Yeah, she's pretty good. Um, so Josh produced the record for you, and it seemed like the first time you were sharing producing with somebody and in the past you said you'd work with an outside per- person if they were a producer that feels like part of the band so how did it feel to bring in this new person who I know is wonderful you probably know he's wonderful too and how in practice did he encourage you to stretch yourself musically um in actuality he literally said let's pretend like you've never made a record before when we go to make this thing. It's like, okay, Josh, that sounds great. Um, You're like, anxiety jaw. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, actually, it was very, it just like my whole jaw just like dropped down and my mouth was <laughs> wide open. I probably ate a few flies after that. Um, oh. Basically, the first time we met Josh, I think he was playing with Fruit Bats at this like uh, this thing that Eric was putting on at Newport like kind of a variety show, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and he was playing bass and I just, I loved his bass playing. I loved his vibe. We ended up talking to him for a little bit and, uh, cause I knew he played with like his golden messenger a little bit and, you know, with Phil and those JT Bates and also you can't miss him. Yeah. He's just very physically memorable. He is. And he also just has a glow about him, you know, like mm-hmm. I never, I've never seen him moping. I'm sure he mopes, but I've never seen him mope. And we just, like, whenever we would run into him, it was always so positive, you know. And, and then we'd watch him play or listen to him play, and it was, like, he was, he, he'd he be the person that I would lock lock in on on stage, you know. And, and it was, so finally when we went to make this record, we didn't know we were actually making the record yet. We kind of just wanted to feel it out with Josh to see how it would work. And we asked him to go to this lake house with us and basically do a demo session. Um and we got there, and the hang was just so great. And for about four days, we did nothing but just, like, laugh, eat good food, and make this record. Um, and we knew right from the start of the very first song that we recorded, we were like, okay, we're making a record. This is not a yeah. demo session, you know? Not a drill, folks. No, this is not a drill. This is the real thing. Um <laughs> But he, yeah, he just brought a really great energy to it, and I feel like he brought out the best um and me and Emily, and it made us shine on our own album like we'd never have before. Um, the whole band sounds incredible on the record, you know, like we, in the past, have tried to really fight for these wide open spaces for mm-hmm. some reason. I mean, like, it, it's still important to us, but Josh was like, man, you guys naturally play that way. You don't have to fight for this, you know, like, y'all, you leave that space, like, just go play and it's going to be fine. And so we did. And, um, I think all of the songs on this record sound really fresh and very in the moment. Um, and it basically is that it's basically a live record that was just us playing in this living room in this little lake house. So, Hmm. so on the theme of home, just kind of like poking (coughs) around your past press. I know it's, it's weird doing an interview with like, I'm having to answer for myself here. Is it upsetting? <laughs> no, it's good. <laughs> you wrote the album Such Jubilee in 2015 about the celebration of home, as in coming home from touring. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about this a little bit in this interview about like reflections during the pandemic. But how has the concept of home evolved during and after the pandemic? Um, I think... It's really shined a light on how much community means, you know, for home. Because we missed our bandmates and we missed a lot of the people that we would see on tour. Um, 
you know, just randomly running into people. And those people make us feel like we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, you know what I mean? And we can be halfway around the world and be with the people that we love and trust the most, you know? And I think in that sense, it's kind of that, like, age-old troubadour, like, mindset where it's just like wherever I hang my hat is home but it it kind of is you know I mean if mm-hmm. if you if you love the people that you travel with and we've we've cultivated a band of people that we that we love and trust and want to be with even when we're not playing music you know um mm. and we didn't get to do that much during the pandemic we were all in our separate little corners of the earth and you know I think I I can't speak for the rest of the band maybe they were glad to get away from me but I definitely <laughs> miss I miss them. I don't and blame I, them. I, I know, exactly. I'm so long-winded. Um, <laughs> but, um, and Emily, too, I, we've talked about it a lot, too, like during the pandemic, how just how much we miss the crew and how much we miss seeing everybody. Mm. Yeah. It's nice to be able to get back to it. That's that's the word on the street. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I think the CDC said that musicians can hug each other again. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, it's like... <laughs> Okay, so one more thing before I let you go. It is a very important part of the podcast called The Lightning Round. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know we've been asking you all sorts of questions, but these are just maybe 10 or so more fun time snack-sized cues. You ready? I'm going to turn the light off. Hang on. Okay. <laughs> Listeners, okay. Andrew has just gotten off. And he's turned the light off and his headphones back on. And All here right. we go. It's the lightning round. Andrew Marlin, mm-hmm. what is the first song you learned on the guitar? Uh, my own song, Live For Now. Wow. <laughs> that banger. Yeah. Hit song. True. Yeah. What What is your karaoke song? I don't do karaoke. It scares the shit out of me. Hmm. I don't know that song. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, I can't find the lyrics of it anywhere, and that's why I don't do it. Do you like dogs or cats or something else? Uh, I like cats. Really? Mm-hmm. I like them, too. It's unusual to get a cat person on this yeah. lightning round. <laughs> um, but I love it. Okay, what is your coffee order? Uh, just a standard, usually a medium coffee with a little bit of cream. First celebrity crush? Uh, probably Jennifer Aniston, I would say. Mmm. Interesting. She, she's beautiful. She is. Natalie Portman. That that was a hard one too. That was like, that's a. Natalie Portman is a heartbreaker. Oh yeah, Natalie Portman. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Nicest musician I've ever met. Probably Josh Oliver, who plays guitar with us in our band. Nice. First album you bought with your own money. Um. I think it was a Led Zeppelin record. Led Zeppelin two, maybe. Hmm. Respectable. Yeah. What was your first concert? Wait, I have to go back. Shit, is the lightning already passed? No, we can we can rain it back. Does it ha- it has to be with your own money though? Yeah. Okay, Led Zeppelin two. Sig- Never mind. Significant. It's passed. Yeah, Led Zeppelin two. All right. What was your first concert? Um, first one that actually meant something would be Pearl Jam when I was in the ninth grade. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, it was a great one. And he was wearing a shirt that said, Who Would Jesus Bomb? And it had a, a picture of George Bush on there with bombs going at George Bush's oh face. I love Eddie Vedder. I know. He's amazing. He's, he's the musician that I would want to meet in my life that I probably never will. Probably one of the reasons I write songs, but we can talk about wow. that later. Yeah. The next episode yeah. is about Eddie Vedder. <laughs> um, Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Beatles. Flying or Invisibility? Oh, invisibility. Whew, another rarity of an answer. Uh, okay, here's the last question, so make it count. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Um, Salt Spring Island in Vancouver. Mmm, good answer. I have not been to Vancouver, but the pictures are nice. Oh, uh, you should. It's awesome. It's so pretty. Nice. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking so much time to talk about the mandolin, naming things, yeah. <clears throat> etc. It's uh, really a pleasure. I've really been looking forward to this. Same here. Yeah. Thanks for doing it. 
Basic Folk This Week was produced by Sarah Siplak. Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople composes our music. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I am your host, Cindy House. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you think of somebody who would also like this interview, please share it with them. You can tell them they can get it wherever you found this podcast, wherever they get podcasts, and at basicfolk.com. And I'll talk to you next time. Okay, bye.